there are many things that are appealing and attractive to young Americans about China, including the apps TikTok,、uh, Sheen. Also, there are many young Americans interested in traditional culture, such as calligraphy. I have some friends that are interested in Chinese medicine. Of course, thanks to the spread of TikTok. Where Chinese music and Chinese fashion is also getting recognition. It largely depends on our professors. My sports journalism professor gave me a very deep impression because he always emphasized that all human beings deserve a common measure of dignity. So that is why my classmates all, were all friendly to me. The concern, I think, is that the United States. Is on a, a confrontational path. That's very clear. And who ends up getting asked to fight the wars or to, to die for the country? It's the young people. And there are clearly young people who are being swayed by the anti-China narratives. What, what percentage they are? It seems it's not a majority. Younger people have grown up in a more globalized world. They've had more exposure to diverse cultures, including Chinese culture.、Uh, young people are more aware that、uh, we have an economic interdependence between China and the rest of the world. The younger generation is is our hope, as younger generations have have always been. And I believe technology is helping younger people to get a bigger picture. The chat lounge. Chat lounge. Chat lounge. The chat lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the chat lounge. I'm Tuyun. Joining our discussion on the finding that younger Americans are friendlier to China are Harvey Zoden, senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization; Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, East China Normal University. Lila Mahoney, a Chinese language and literature major at East China Normal University, too, and my colleague Song Raising. Welcome to you all. So we are having a very special guest today, Lila. We have Lila on the show not because she's Joseph's daughter, but because she's a youth representative from the states. So, Lila, can you、uh, give us a brief introduction of yourself? Hello, I am Lila Song Mahoney. I am. As mentioned before, a student at East China Normal University, but I have grew up in both China and the U.S.、Mm. Now, why did you choose to, you know, have your college education here in China?、Um, I grew up in Shanghai. I have a deep love for Shanghai as well as China,、uh, and I am very fascinated with Chinese culture, Chinese literature, and so on. So I bet you're one of the young Americans who who think、um, China is a friend or or friendly to the states, right? Yes, that's what we are discussing today.、Uh, why younger Americans are friendlier to China? That's according to a you know recent poll jointly conducted by British magazine The Economist and public opinion company YouGov not long ago.、Um, the poll showed a sharp difference in. American people's views of China by age group. So, when answering the question about one in four Americans aged eighteen to forty-four said they view China as an enemy, that's compared with about one in every two of those aged forty-five or above, and almost one in four 
that's um, 25% young Americans said they see China as friendly. While in comparison, only 4% of older Americans share the same sentiment. So um, because it's Leela's first appearance on the show, uh, I'm going to start with you, Leela. Is it in line with your observation of the situation back in the States? Uh, I think it is. I would say about 30% or a little higher view China as an enemy. About 20% view China as a friend or a collaborator. And the rest are pretty clueless or unaware or not very interested into looking into this. Mm. Then to yourself, why, why do you think China is uh, friendly and not an enemy towards the states? I think China has made consistent efforts trying to communicate with the U.S. Uh, through multiple ways and um, th- uh, many ways trying to have effective collaborations that serve a good purpose for both. Mm, for instance, can you give us an example? Um, for example, the of course, it's not, not just to the U.S. alone, but Confucius Institutes that provide Chinese-related education or higher-scale meetings about environmental issues and sustainability mm. and so on. Right. I see uh, the younger generation pay a lot of attention to the environment. So I'm going to ask um, another youngster, I would say, from uh, the age group of uh, 18 to uh, 44, who came back to China um, last August. When you studied in the States about uh, the attitude toward uh, China, what did um, your American classmates or alumni tell you? Or did they ask you anything about China or say anything or something like uh, China's not friendly enough to the States, anything like that? I spent one year in the U.S., that is from 2021 to 2022, and uh, I was in Southern California. Mm. So um, in 2021, I think, to 2022, I think the Winter Olympics was going, all of my classmates are were always curious about what's going, what's going on in China, like mm. in Beijing. Like what, what, what about like uh, Alan Gu and uh, Zhu Yi, those athletes. And sometimes they would ask me if uh, like one child policy is real or they asked me um, what's China's position towards the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I can't say they're very that kind of friendly, but, you know, because they are well educated because they're all university students. So at least they would look friendly and uh, it largely depends on our professors. My sports journalism professor gave me a very deep impression because he always emphasized that all human beings deserve a common measure of dignity. Mm. So that is why my classmates were all friendly to me. And uh, my professor practices what he preaches, that is to be kind, to be warm and to friendly, to be friendly to each all of us. Then two older guests here. I'm not sure that's the appropriate word, but uh, Joseph, um, is this finding in line with your recognition of the situation in the States? 
Yeah, I, I will talk about, I guess, maybe the older <laughs> the older perspective, uh, since uh, I'm older than, than Rasheen and obviously Leela, not quite as old as Harvey, although he's looking, <laughs> yeah. although he's looking good for his age. Uh, uh, what I would say <laughs> is that um, it's interesting that Rasheen noted the Beijing Olympics because I would go back to the 2008 Beijing Olympics as a turning point in that I observed firsthand in in the United States. We were, Leela and I were, were still living in Michigan at that time. And Michigan, we were living in the western part of Michigan. And uh, previously, western Michigan had been dominated by, they had some agricultural production there, but but they had a lot of small companies that supplied parts, automobile parts to uh, the automakers that were had been based historically in Detroit. And over time, those factories moved. Some of them moved to China. Some of them uh, relocated to southern U.S. states where there were poor union representation. But there was this growing sense in western Michigan that, w- that was being exploited, certainly by local politicians, that uh, the reason why people were feeling an economic pinch was because China was stealing their jobs and because the Central American migrant labor was stealing their so it was it was this externalization of what people were were feeling in terms of what many scholars would uh, describe as the eroding middle class, which has actually been a phenomenon underway since the 1980s. But it really began to bite even my generation of white men, and this really was growing in the early 2000s, particularly as China began to accelerate after joining the WTO in 2001. Mm. And then US, of course, suffers the, the um, 9-11 that same year. But then in 2008, we have the global financial crisis that starts in the US. And this is when my generation, and a little bit younger than me, this is when they really start to feel pain. This is when a lot of them lose their homes, a lot of them lose their equity, a lot of them realize that they're not going to eclipse their parents' standards of living. This is where my generation in the United States started uh, committing suicide, where we start seeing an increase in suicide rates higher than any other comparable age group in in, uh, developed countries. Uh, This is where we really begin to see the opioid epidemic accelerate. So it's this time in 2008 where I remember I was in in a Home Depot, a large box store where you buy things for your home. And I was waiting to speak to the salesperson and I, I was listening to this working class guy talk to the to the sales agent before me, and he's saying, "Listen, I don't care what brand it is. I just don't want it made in China." Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it struck me because it was it sounded hateful, even you know. And I was like, well, "Why?" Right. Because I'd spent so much time in China. My my children, you know, are half Chinese. I I thought, "Why, why is this the case?" And then we had another individual, a senior professor at the university that I was working at. He sent out a, a global email to everyone who worked in the university that the university should cut all ties with anything related to China because uh, China was a communist nation and blah, 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 blah. And so this is sort of when I begin to really detect a change. But it it also runs in tandem with, I think, in in some respects, the Beijing Olympics from 2008, Mm -hmm. which were this this incredible show, right? It was an unprecedented spectacle, the, the opening ceremony that Zhang Yimou uh, put together. So I think there was this, this moment where all of a sudden China was perceived not only as a, as a growing power, but as a, 
as a threat that could somehow be blamed by unscrupulous politicians for what was happening in the U.S. labor market or what was happening in terms of U.S. healthcare or the regulation or the poorly poor regulation of the of the financial sector. So this was this was the moment that I began to really perceive a change and began to struggle with it in ways that ultimately led me to 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 take my family out of the United States and, right. and come to China. But at that time, most Americans didn't regard China as an enemy, right? They probably just thought um, China's an arising rival or competitor. It's not yet I, an enemy. You know, certainly, certainly the, the enemy narrative or, you know, or, or the, the fear has accelerated from that point in time. In other words, as the United States has suffered a long trend of declines that really, again, we can say, you know, it starts to become uh, rather clear in 2001. So I think I've mentioned this on a previous program with you that there's sort of three turning points yeah. in in uh, the US and, and you can look at a one-to-one -one relationship. So 2001, when the United States suffers 9-11, but China joins the WTO. 2008, when China has the Beijing Olympics, but the US has the global financial crisis. And then 2020, when China recovers and contains COVID at home, and becomes the country that restarts the global economy while the United States goes into collapse, while the United States expands the money supply by 20% to paper over their catastrophic response, while the U.S. Uh, spends trillions of dollars in uh, deficit finance stimulus trying to stay afloat and, and survive long enough for, for vaccines to appear. So these three moments in time, and then along the way, you have people like Trump who start to exploit these sentiments that have really started taking root, I think, in, in the late 2000s, 2008, 2009. And uh -huh. then um, he's exploiting them as a nationalist or as a populist in, in the run-up to the election. And then, you know, now here we are. And, and Harvey, do you share the same or similar experiences when it comes to people's perception of China uh, for, for the people around you? Well, because I lived in China for such a long time, it's hard to give the American perspective. And I, what I know is, what I look at the polls and see that there has been a growing hatred of uh, many Americans uh, about China. But I don't believe that uh, it's anything that started in this century, in this 21st century. Mm. I think it goes back to uh, the country's uh, white supremacy origins when we had slavery. And when we had Chinese people come to America in the gold rush in the mid-19th century, and as a result, we passed very racist acts like the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s and uh, other acts that basically treated Chinese people as second-class citizens, didn't allow them into the country, and so on. So I believe that this is a long-time thing. But I do know, as Joseph pointed out, the negativity of Americans seems to have grown in the 21st century. And I think part of it is because of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is the belief that America was chosen by God to lead the peoples of the world. And it also, that even has a racist component that we white people know better, are superior to Asians, to Africans, and, and so on. So I think it's very hard when you're a number one country to give it up, especially a number one country has been chosen by God in the view of, of some people. And I'm very worried, actually, about where this whole thing is going. 
I think that uh, we're getting closer and closer to war. We're getting closer and closer to the abyss. And maybe the only pretty part of this ugly picture is that young people, for a variety of reasons that I'm sure or I hope we discuss, that young people are more, I think, fair when they look at uh, China and the rest of the world vis-a-vis the United States. So I think we older people, Joseph and me, uh, we've not we personally, I hope, but our cohorts, our generation, we've screwed up the world and we've put it in the laps of the young people. And I think they have to grapple with what we've created. And hopefully if they're still around, if we're still around, Um, they hopefully will do a better job because they're more enlightened and less biased. Right. You didn't screw up the world, but you built up this world. But uh, to Lila, um, like uh, Harvey just said, the younger generations is maybe the bright spot at this moment when it comes to Sino-U.S. relations. And um, I'm wondering what prompted your friendly attitude towards China? Maybe to what extent have, have your views about China been influenced by senior people like your parents or maybe your teachers around you? My view of China, of course, is very deeply influenced by my parents. Uh, My father and my mother is Chinese. So, and of course, growing up in China as well, I attended schools with Chinese people, for Chinese people. So this, of course, had a very big influence on me and how I viewed China. I definitely cannot view it as an enemy, but a part of my identity in my home. Mm. But I do want to continue a point of uh, what Mr. Harvey just said about the American exceptionalism Mm. and uh, why young Americans have a difference in viewing China as a friend or enemy than the older generation. My thought is because... Older generation Americans generally could be offended by the difference we see from China and America and see that as a rejection. But for younger Americans, we grew up in an age where China is a well-established, a powerful and admirable country, not just a uh, country that is so-called rejecting the American path. Mm where China is on its own path, and not only so, young Americans may reject their own country themselves. So from two levels, they will not have the same hostile attitude towards China compared to the older generations. Right. Or some people would say the younger generations are just trying to be uh, rebellious or eager to be different from their um, the older generation. Does that make any sense to you? I think it's definitely more than that. It's Mm -hmm. not just simply trying to be rebellious or quirky because we have grown up in such a different age where both the U.S. and China are playing different roles. And that shapes our view on our own country and foreign countries tremendously. Can I add something to that since it's kind of an intergenerational conversation? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that, L- that Lila was saying that reminded me of something is that, and it, it ties back in a little bit to what Harvey was saying, is that uh, in the 1970s, right, when China was still in the Cultural Revolution, my mother used to tell me, I remember clearly, because I, I hated broccoli, mm-hmm. and I still hate broccoli, <laughs> 
and a few other things. Uh, she would tell me, kids are starving in, in China. You need to, you know, eat all the food on your plate, trying to guilt me into eating something awful. Mm -hmm. So I, I think what Lila was trying to say is that people of her generation, and not just her, because she grew up in Shanghai, and Shanghai, of course, is one of the most developed cities in the world. But it is the case that when I grew up, I had this image of China as being very basic and very backward. Mm. I recall that I once came across it in 1989 or 1990. I was wasting time in the library in between classes. And I came across a, a book of Chinese science fiction that had been translated into English. It was from the book, the, the short stories have been written in the 1960s or something. And it was, you know, the Red Guards in spaceships with Mao Zedong thought and their little red books, and they were flying out to the stars. And I was thinking, holy crap, that's completely <laughs> unimaginable. Mm -hmm. yeah, because it, at that time, you know, the United States is the world leader in, in space, uh, we, we have space shuttles and, and all of these things. And of course, you know, the world has changed significantly. But when I first came to China in 1998, I had already lived in, in South Asia and spent a, a considerable amount of time in in, in other parts of the world. And again, this was 1998. And I and I lived and worked in Shenyang, which was not the most advanced city in China at that time. And it was stunning to me how much more advanced, how much cleaner, how much better organized China was from what I anticipated. I expected it to be something on par with India, not culturally the same as India, but somewhere in terms of uh, comparable. You see what I mean? Like Because I came from that era that saw China originally as being backward and poor and and, and a, a bad way of thinking and so forth and so on. So I think Leela is right that the older generation, maybe Harvey remembers the Manchurian Candidate as, as a film. It was a film that I had to watch in high school. It was uh, older than I was when, in terms of when it came out. But, you know, there was this old Cold War narrative that included China as an enemy. And then it, and then China moves into this ambiguous position with the restoration of relations led by Nixon and Kissinger in the 1970s, coming to Beijing to meet Mao Zedong. And again, I remember this thing in grade school when I was like maybe sixth grade or seventh grade, we used to get these little weekly reader reports. And this is, you know, the Reagan's Cold War era. It was um, like a world map in which countries were red, right? It was like red, the, the evil communist. And China was in the red category, but there was like this little note on the weekly reader that China was a friend of China, right? So we, we began to transition to China as a friendly nation, as someone who wasn't part of the Soviet sphere, but we still had this imagination that China was backward. I think Harvey's in part right that when he says that Americans have a hard time, older Americans at least, have a hard time accepting the idea on some deep identity level that the Chinese people are equal to, right? It, it's very difficult for them to imagine a, an Asian nation being as powerful or having the same type of equality or the same type of, of opportunity, especially a nation that has a different political system or a different set of social values. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We'll be back right after this. D-Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Chat Lounge, and we are talking about why younger Americans are friendlier to China and its implications for future policies and the Sino-U.S. relations. Joseph, basically, you're saying you're attracted by so many unusual aspects of China to to this century, but the, nowadays it's different time, different era, and、um, what can Be attractive to for China. Be attractive to Lila and her generation. An American wrote、um, quite humorously on Quora that maybe younger Americans have their minds melted from using apps developed by Chinese firms such as、uh, TikTok and and Shine, the, the fast fashion retailer. So I'm going to ask Lila again: How much influence do you think Chinese products have on people's perception on China, on young people like you? Uh, I think there are many things that are appealing and attractive to young Americans about China, including, like you said, the apps, TikTok,、uh, Shein. Also, there are many young Americans interested in traditional culture, such as calligraphy. Or I've I've seen I have some friends that are interested in Chinese medicine. There's also, of course, thanks to The spread of TikTok, where Chinese music and Chinese fashion is also getting recognition. Also, a very major, which is also tied into Chinese apps, is Chinese gaming,、mm. where massive companies like Tencent or MiHoYo are developing games that are being played by not just Americans but so many users worldwide. Turning to Harvey. You've mentioned、um, maybe you want to touch upon or elaborate more on why、um, the younger generations are more friendly to China. I think we could spend the whole program talking about why. I think there's so many reasons for this, and and、uh, our two young colleagues have already mentioned some of that. But for me, from my perspective of having one foot in the grave already, is that I'm from the Center for China and Globalization, so. It's pretty much a no-brainer to tell you that younger people have grown up in a more globalized world,、yeah. and therefore they've had more exposure to diverse cultures, including Chinese culture,、uh, like was、uh, mentioned. And I think that that exposure, on balance, has led to a more positive attitude、uh, towards China. I also think that、uh, young people are more aware that、uh, we have an economic interdependence between China and the rest of the world. And so that has to be recognized, and the, the the benefits of economic cooperation, and the risks from hostility、uh, towards powerful neighbors also has to be recognized. <laughs> I think one kind of funny example、uh, beyond TikTok is that I was reading an article the other day that said the vast majority of young people in America have iPhones. You know, iPhones. It says in the package. Proudly designed in California, but they were efficiently produced in China, and people know that. And so, I also think that unlike Joseph or me, who grew up in an era of the Red Scare,、uh, or read about the era of the Red Scare in the early '50s, which interestingly enough was being pushed by a senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, whose main advisor. Was also Trump's main advisor as a lawyer, and made Trump into the person he is today. In so far as、uh, his legal perspective, that young people 
you have the opportunity. You've seen how the world works. You're not polluted by some of the things that we went through, some of the horrible things that we went to. And at the same time, you're the ones who have to pick up the pieces, like I said before. So I think that's why you have a more realistic perspective. And I hope now that travel is opening up in the world after three years of COVID, mm. that we'll have more people traveling between China, Europe, America, and so on. Because then we will be able to see that people in all those countries are much more alike than they are different. And it's not worth it to have a war that's going to end civilization. But we have to build on what we have in common. We need to protect the environment. We need to prepare for the next uh, pandemic. We need to talk about arms control. We need to talk about poverty. And we old fogies, we're not going to do that. So it's up to the young people to seize the bull by, by the horns and work together with China, EU, other countries to try to make a better world that we older people largely have failed at. Yes, but on the other hand, young people focus much less on politics, unlike you and Joseph when you were uh, much younger. Is that also a reason behind, um, you know, the younger generation being more friendly to China. And when they, you know, when they um, grow older or when they care much more about politics, would their perception of China change? And I don't know how many hours do we have to discuss this? It's a big question, obviously. Yeah. I, I disagree with you, actually, mm-hmm. on, on one aspect. Yes, it's true. The historical trend has been that older people become more conservative over time. They have a different mindset. This has always been the case. So young people are always the hope of the future, much more than old people who tend to screw things up. But I do believe that in America anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, that actually young people are much more interested in politics now. They've registered to vote in large numbers. And as a result of that, you have Republicans who are trying to keep young people from voting. So last week, the Texas Senate voted to advance a number of new restrictions on young people born after 1996, the Generation Z, Z, for this very reason. So there's a fear among the white supremacist power structure that young people are getting more interested in politics and they're getting frantic and they want to stop them, just like in the Civil War, after the Civil War and Reconstruction, they wanted to stop black people from assuming their rights uh, as, uh, as free citizens rather than former slaves. Our country, it's really screwed up. And so you have these forces of good on one side and forces of evil on the other side. And we're generally moving in the wrong direction, unfortunately, in my opinion. Mm. Ju- well, I, I would add something to right. that. Uh, I, I agree in part, but I would raise some other complications that if we ask generationally, right, um, we're largely talking about people born in the 90s or later, right? These are the people who, at least nominally, grew up in the post-Cold War era. They didn't have all of that nonsense that was, you know, part of Harvey's life and still part of my life in the 1980s uh, when I was coming of age. So they escaped that whole, so they, they weren't front-loaded with all of that negativity. At the same time, they did grow up in the United States when technology really began to accelerate. 
And, you know, so this is where we have uh, so many young people in China who have something in common with their American peers or their European peers. They like a lot of the same media. Uh, it's not just that they like uh, South Korean music or Japanese anime or uh, what have you. Uh, it's These things began to have a global currency, uh, in part because I think they were speaking to this new type of 90s and, and post-90s generation uh, way of thinking, right? And the other side of this is that after 9-11, when the United States advanced uh, the Patriot Act, this is when you know, we became increasingly aware in the U.S. itself that companies like Yahoo and Google and Microsoft and Apple were keeping these massive files on us and that the government now had the right to enter that data whenever they wanted and to do so secretly. Uh, this was one of the, the outcomes of the, of the Patriot Act and to access that information without the consent of the company or the individual whose data was being examined. My point is that young people grew up in this era where that was kind of horrifying to people of my age, and I'm sure Harvey's age, but it was just life for young people like like Leela and others. There's sort of two points here. The first is, I think some American users are aware that TikTok is a Chinese company, but it doesn't represent China in their life. In other mm. words, the way TikTok works for them is that it's speaking to you know, the way that they connect to media, the way that they want to connect to other people. And it's it's kind of a, a post-national or transnational product, right? Just like uh, Chinese love Apple products or Coca-Cola or fried chicken, whether it's Kentucky fried chicken or, or Korean fried <laughs> chicken, right? China is now producing products like this. But I don't think it's necessarily the case that TikTok is something that Americans, that most young American users identify as a Chinese product. It's just a product that fits who they are and what they want to do. Yeah. So then on top of this, we have this older generation that's, you know, inducing hysteria and fear and saying, oh, the Chinese Communist Party can access TikTok data whenever they want and you're at risk. And, uh, you know, I think, well, actually, there's no evidence of that. But at, on the other hand, that's exactly what the American companies have been doing. Um, and, so, and so the young people, I think on a certain level, they realize this and they don't care. Mm. I mean, it's like we live in a world where people spy on on us all the time. And the U.S. more than anyone else spies on, on its own citizens and the rest of the world. This is the world in which they grew up. And it's the world in which if you're involved in social media, if you're involved in any sort of digital platform, you just have to take it for granted that everything that you say might be recorded and accessed and whatever, right? And of course, uh, always realize that you're probably a lot less important than you think you are. But nevertheless, this is what I, I think is is happening, that young people just don't perceive China as being a greater threat than what they already experience from the other products that proliferate in their in their user experience. Mm. Leela is one of them. And a small question to Leela. I understand you're a, you know, a rising influencer on TikTok trying to bridge or at least introduce China to your peers on TikTok and um, trying to promote understanding between China and the rest of the world, especially the States. So when you got attacked by those who, who don't agree with what you say about China. What do you usually do? And um, what has made you stay motivated and persistent? First of all, 
I'm I'm flattered, but I wouldn't call myself a, a rising influencer on TikTok. But thank you very much. Um, I think I have been attacked. It's definitely not a good feeling, but I'm surfing online just like everyone else all the time, and you could see arguments, hatred, harassment all the time online. No matter who's speaking, what they're saying, where they're from, who they are. So on. So I think it's sadly inevitable, and I don't put too much heart to it. And I just appreciate that、uh, I have the platform that I can have and speak my mind. Then, when you probably、uh, got bullied, what would you do? Like just ignore them, or try to reason with them, or, or make other moves? And what made you stay focused and motivated? And were persistent on what you were doing.、Um, I usually do not interact, even positive comments、uh. on my videos. I would not interact and with them with my private account or just yeah. I do. I don't interact with hateful comments as well as positive comments.、Uh, I try to learn from what people have to say, but also keep my own pace in real life. If I have arguments with,、um, say, friends or just people I meet in person, I would try to reason and、uh, have a discussion. And、uh, Rishin, what? I bet you when when you were in the states and you and your classmates or peers were using social media platforms a lot, like TikTok. So, were you trying to do anything to to relieve the misunderstanding? Probably by some、uh, Americans towards China.、Um, I don't. I don't see、oh, too.、Uh, it's okay. <laughs> I don't see too many discussions. I mean,、mm. uh, which are very you know aggressive or that is to kind of misleading. But、uh, I think my classmates always you know come together and to talk about like the newest trend and to see there's if there's any. International trend or anything special, you know, happening in China or happening around the world. You're listening to the Chat Lounge. We'll be back after this. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related: the hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Welcome back. You're listening to the Chat Lounge, and we are talking about why younger Americans are friendlier to China and its implications for future policies and the Sino-U.S. relations. It seems、uh, it's a little bit different from what I would imagine because, according to this、um, poll by YouGov and The Economist, there is a rising share of Americans who think、um, China is a big threat or an enemy of the states. So, with you know, the- I think I think the the real point here that that、right. we should consider. Is that we are reaching clearly efforts by older generations to tip young people into an anti-China position in the United States, and they're clearly trying to create this sense of an existential threat. Yeah. And I know, and, and, and I don't know if Lila wants to talk about this, but but she went to high school in the U.S. and she experienced a lot of,、um, it, you know, even among her generation, it was a Catholic high school and. 
they were conservatives and, and very much Republican and under the influence of Trump. And of course, Trump was leading the charge on anti-China and even you know with anti-Asian implications, the so-called China virus and blaming China for everything that had ever gone wrong with this. And But Leela directly experienced that in high school and not just but for their teachers who were older, but hearing a lot of that being uh, echoed by young people who were, you know, perhaps echoing what their parents had said, or again, these were conservative religious people. But um, it, it is a concern, right? It, it's it's there, There's a concern right now in China, for example. Uh, there has been a concern, starting with the 90s generation, that maybe they were tipping too far to the West. And this has caused, you know, Beijing to worry and try to think about, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that they stay Chinese in some way, right? Whereas there's something similar happening in the United States, where it's not that the the young Americans were tipping towards China, they just weren't anti-China. Yeah. But there is this there is this effort to make them anti-China, and the question is, you know, can we count on those young people to to remain smart and not slip into these racist tropes and to you know get dragged into a conflict? Yeah, can, th- that's can what they I'm going to ask you and uh, Harvey the implications of these changes or these shifts when it comes to the attitudes towards China? And uh, what should both governments or people from both sides do, at least to make it less conflicting between the Chinese and the Americans? Well, I don't think- I don't know if I can jump in. Go ahead, Harvey. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks a lot. I mean, I think the well is so poisoned that it's very difficult at this point to do anything because if one side or the other kind of reaches out and wants to uh, build a bridge someone's going to say you know that uh, people are traitors that uh, if you're on the american side that the communists do uh if you're on the chinese side probably say something you know similar to that that you're in the pocket of the americans so i really think that it's much more difficult today than it was five or ten years ago to build bridges but it's exactly what bridges is what we have to do. Because mm-hmm. if we don't, we're not going to have a world. Yeah. We're not going to have an environment. We're not going to have public health but can and this we, kind of thing. Yeah. Can, can we count on the, the younger generation? The younger generation is, is our hope, as younger generations have, have always been. And I believe that uh, technology is helping younger people to get a bigger picture. Uh, it's not completely good, the new technology, because there's a lot of bad actors out there and people can be influenced. But I think that uh, with the new technologies, uh, young people are getting different points of view. And so uh, hopefully the ones uh, who will contribute to the political system are going to be smart enough. And they'll be smart enough to realize that they keep going down this uh, road that as older people are going down now, that there isn't going to be no more road. There's going to be no more nothing. Joseph, do you think, um, like I said before, um, maybe when this younger generation, when they grow older, they might want to be become more mainstream, which is um, what we have today. We're seeing every day in the media, in the government agencies. You know, I think I think there's there is a, a battle right now for the soul of America, and it, and it's 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 not the souls of the old people; <laughs> those are pretty much, uh, as, as Harvey has repeatedly intoned, uh, let's not say going to hell, but but maybe not going to heaven. <laughs> but the concern 
I think, is that the United States is on a, a confrontational path. That's very clear. And who ends up getting asked to fight the wars or to, to die for the country? It's the young people. And there are clearly young people who are being swayed by the anti-China narratives. What, what percentage they are, it seems it's not a majority yet. But even during the Cold War, young people were not that excited about going to Vietnam mm. uh, to kill uh, Vietnamese people. And so my, my sense is that there is a threshold where young people will say, no, you know, not only do I not want an enemy, I don't want to go fight for something that I don't want to believe in. But in addition to this, as was noted earlier, young people are more concerned about, I think, generally speaking, social equality. They're more concerned about uh, not falling into the to the cycle of, of racism. They are more concerned about the environment. They're aware that we need to cooperate in order to not only have peace, but to save the world from climate change. So, and we see this, I think, substantially in China itself, right? The, the young people, they may or may not lean to the West. They may or may not have positive feelings about the West, but I think they realize that uh, we're all in this together, mm-hmm. whether we like it or not. But there is, in fact, a profound metaphysics at work, right? Where th- this idea that the U.S. is the chosen country, and now that the U.S. is clearly suffering a decline, this has an apocalyptic implication for a lot of older Americans who, who are unable to accept the idea that the U.S. won't be God's chosen country. And I, I almost think that they would rather, because and, and I see this in my parents and, and other people, they would almost rather have a, an apocalyptic war, an apocalyptic conflict, than to imagine going forward in a way where we're cooperating with each other. But I I don't think young people are going to go along with it, uh, in part because they want to continue to live Mm. and and move forward with their lives. Yeah. Uh, When I was uh, compiling these questions, I was getting increasingly pessimistic. But after hearing what you and Joseph and um, Leela and uh, Racing just said, it seems uh, the prospects are not so gloomy. Then the, the last question, maybe starting from Lila, any idea or you want to contribute to build up this Sino-US relations instead of uh, destroying it, like what some US officials are doing right now? I think the uh, in order to have a positive interaction, first of all, definitely we have to put down petty and necessary negative ideas because I believe that a, uh, a silly conference uh, is so hostile against TikTok. If millions of American teenagers know it's silly, then I'm sure that the people in charge know it's silly as well. And I think the first step is to face that and drop these hostile attitudes is the most important thing to even have a chance to have a positive and effective communication. Raisin? Yes. Like Harvey mentioned before, Americans think China is playing a large game right now. So uh, the American way far too often is to assume they should lecture to everyone else about democracy, about decency and moral values and human rights. And uh, they believe other ones who hear them preach about those matters. 
I don't mean there's no grace or no goodwill in the American society or American stories. But still, if they keep doing this, I mean, with their moral superiority, I can't see a positive change in in China-U.S. relations. Mm. So, I mean, we need negotiations and respect for each other. And to um, the group with um, more wisdom, uh, Joseph? Well, you know... (laughs) People know uh, what, what they what uh, we Harvey said do. something. Harvey said something earlier, and and I almost uh, criticized him for saying it. He said he had one foot in the grave, but it reminds me. I, I was teaching a class on dialectics the other day here in the in the Marxism <laughs> seminar that I teach at at ECNU, and um, I said, you know, one of the best things for human progress is that people die. Um, they get out of the way. Um, old people die. They they take their old ideas to the grave with them. And young people have a chance to um, clear their air and, and move forward. And this, in part, this is something that uh, Hegel and Marx talk about. Um, and in the larger context, we, we call this harmonization, the, the uh, opportunity for generations to uh, correct the mistakes of their parents and to move forward. And historically, this has been the general trend. We do have some, some worrying about climate change and um, uh, we still are locked in this in this dark struggle of competitive uh, capitalism and, and nationalism, but nevertheless, we we do have the potential for change. Mm. Um, my sense is, as, as President Xi Jinping has made clear, that we are in a new era, but we're also in a very difficult period, and there are concerns that we hear among scholars that it's not far-fetched to imagine that the U.S. and China could be facing a, a, an open conflict or even war in the next two to five years. I think we have to do every, every, for right now, we have to do everything we can to prevent that from happening, to allow for peace and cooperation to prevail. And I, I think, and I've said this in media a number of times, that the, the best way for us to do that is, is to be agents for peace. Uh, and this is one of the things that I that I love about the the global security initiative that we've seen coming out of Beijing, which you know the first fruits of which are restoring diplomatic relations between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. But then uh, President Xi going to Moscow to, to promote a diplomatic solution to the conflict in Ukraine. I think we're going to see more efforts. In other words, that China understands that we are in this period where the U.S. is you know potentially trying to turn uh, Taiwan into the to a new Ukraine to, yeah. to, to fight a to fight a conflict. And the only way we can counter that is to is to become overwhelming agents of, of peace and shared prosperity and, and cooperation. I think we see that again, Global Development Initiative, the Belt Road Initiative. This creates such a powerful positive discourse. You know, I'm going to be watching very closely the visit of Macron in Beijing mm. um, and where this is heading. Because you know, this Europe is at the uh, Harvey's in, in in Vienna right now, and Europe is in play right now. If, if Europe tips too much in the direction of the United States, we have China has a much bigger problem. But I, I think that there are saner people in Europe who understand that, and they're trying to resist the U.S. as well. But they're in a very compromised position right now. So you know, we are in this dangerous moment, but let's let's continue to be to be militant for peace and uh, insist on this wherever and whenever we can. And the most senior, I would say most wise people here, Harvey. Uh-huh. Well, first, um, Joseph talked about uh, dialectical things and Marxism. And I said only one foot in the grave, right. not both. The other <laughs> foot is firmly planted in the earth, on the earth, not mm-hmm. in it. 
So I'm happy about that <laughs> to make contributions uh, to trying to build bridges for some time to come. But be that as it may, it's going to be left to young people. So I think what we need to do is build bridges. Joe Enlai, the first premier of China, had this idea that he called folk diplomacy. Today we call it people-to-people diplomacy. Right. We need more people-to-people contact. Now that travel is possible, again, we need to visit each other's countries. We need to use social media to talk to each other that we're much more alike than we are different. I believe then we can plant seeds for peace uh, for the future. Otherwise, if we don't, it may be too late. Or maybe the only way that we're going to get together is when UFOs land on Earth and uh, they're not friendly. But by then it's going to be too late as well. Yeah, like、uh, Harvey just said, maybe we should leave this to the younger generation. You know, like、uh, Deng Xiaoping, the general architect of China's reform and opening up, once said,、um, you know, when he visited Japan. In the 1970s, I, I guess、um, he said the next generation will will have more wisdom, and、um, he was sure they can find a way acceptable to both sides to settle the dispute surrounding、um, the Diaoyu Islands. Maybe that's what will happen to the Sino-U.S. relations. Let's just hope China-U.S. relations won't continue to deteriorate for too long before they, you know, get better. And with that, we come to the end of our discussion. Many thanks to Harry Zodin, senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization; Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, East China Normal University; Lila Mahoney, a Chinese language and a literature major at East China Normal University; and my colleague Ray Xing for sharing your views and experiences with our listeners. If you have any comments on the topic or on the show, please feel free to leave a message for us. Just search Chat Lounge. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, or send us an email to radio at cgtn dot com. I'm Tunyun. Thank you for being with us. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world, it's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire. Faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for two thousand years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why we love Dunhuang? You will have your answers.